The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fifth chapter and the first two verses. The first two verses in chapter 5 of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Now these remarkable and astonishing words come here in the midst of a section that we have been considering for some time until the break for the summer vacation, a section which can be described as the practical section of this great epistle to the Ephesians. And if we are to understand this remarkable statement, it is very essential that we should bear in mind its context and its background. That's important, of course, with any verse of Scripture. It's a dangerous thing just to extract a verse and take it right out of its context. That is, our most heresies have arisen in the church because texts have been taken out of their context. But apart from that, it's quite clear that uh, a letter like this in particular, or any particular argument in it, simply cannot be understood at all unless it is taken in its full context. And this is particularly necessary with regard to these words that we are looking at together this morning. So, as we resume these studies in the epistle to the Ephesians, it is vital that we should hurriedly remind ourselves of the complete setting. Now, this epistle, as we've had many occasions to see, can be divided into two main sections. The first three chapters are doctrinal. He unfolds and expounds the glorious doctrines and fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. Then, having done that, he begins in chapter 4, in verse 1, to apply all this. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He's already been telling them what that is, and now he is anxious that they should work and walk in a manner that is worthy of that. In other words, in chapter 4, he begins his practical application. But even then, as we saw, he still feels that he must remind them of the full doctrine of the church, the nature of the church and the unity of the church. So he goes on to verse 16 in chapter 4 in doing that. Having done that, in verse 17 of chapter 4, he really does come down to personal matters, the things which are thoroughly practical, mundane, and ordinary. In order to show how this glorious life into which they've been brought is something that expresses itself in every detail of life. We're not only Christians on Sunday, he's saying in effect. We're Christians always, wherever we are. Not only in the church of God, in the building. We are Christians in every relationship of life in all our speech and conversation, in all that we handle of other people's property and all these things. Well, now then, there is the general background. But it is also important for us to remember his exact method in dealing with these intensely practical 
and ordinary matters. And his method, you remember, is this. It's not only his method. It's the method of every writer in the New Testament. It is the essential approach of the New Testament to all matters of conduct and behavior, ethics and morality. Well, what is this principle? What is this method? Well, it's this. It is always in terms of doctrine. It is always in terms of the truth that we have believed. That, we have been reminding ourselves, is the peculiar thing about Christian interest in our behavior. If you like the technical term, that is the differentia of Christian ethics. And so, though the Apostle, as I say, in a sense has dealt with the doctrinal section of his letter and has come to the intensely practical and ordinary, he can't do that, he can't handle that even without constantly bringing in his doctrine. And that is the characteristic of this final section from the 17th verse in chapter 4 right to the end of the epistle. It's a constant alternation between particular doctrines and their application. The whole time he keeps on keeping these two things together. Why? Well, it is in order to bring out certain principles. And here are some of them. I'm merely mentioning them to remind you of the background this morning. The New Testament is not interested in goodness in and of itself. Now, the world is, of course. Morality is. Anybody who believes in morality is interested in goodness. And if it is non-Christian morality, the thing that characterizes it, it is that it's interested in goodness in and of itself and for its own sake. Goodness, qua goodness. They say it's a good thing to be good. Honesty is the best policy. It's a good thing for society that people should observe uh, certain rules and orders and, regu and regulations. Now, that's the worldly, the non-Christian view of goodness. But it isn't the Christian view. The Christian is not interested in goodness merely for the sake of goodness. No, no. He is interested in conduct and behavior and right conduct and behavior always only in terms of what God has done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the thing in itself, but the thing because of this other thing that is infinitely greater. Or I can put it like this as a second principle. The Christian life is not a code that is imposed upon us without our understanding it. Now, that again tends to characterize the non-Christian views of morality and conduct, doesn't it? They, they are something that are imposed upon us. That's the characteristic of a law. Now, that's not the position here at all. This is not something that is just imposed upon us and which we don't understand, but which we do simply because it has been imposed upon us. Now, this letter alone is enough to show that that isn't the position. The apostle keeps on giving us reasons for not doing this and for doing that. He wants us to understand it. And so, you see, he intermingles his doctrine, his reminders of doctrine, constantly with his practical exhortations. Or let me put that again as another principle, third principle in this way. 
we must uh, never practice the Christian life and do things that Christians do and avoid things that Christians don't do merely because it is the thing to do and merely because most Christian people do them. That again is not the Christian position. I think we'll all agree and realize that very often that is what does happen to many a young Christian. He's converted, he comes into the Christian life, and then he's told, well, now this is the thing to do. And he does it because it's the thing to do. He doesn't know why, he doesn't understand it. But that isn't how the New Testament would have us be. The New Testament wants us to know exactly why we are doing what we are doing and why we don't do what we don't do. It's intelligent. It doesn't put us under a law. It always provides us with its reasons in order that we may have a true understanding and be able to give a reason for what we are doing. To me, there is nothing sadder than the type of Christian who is conforming to a code but doesn't quite know why and is nervous and apprehensive lest somebody will tackle them about this because they really can't give an explanation. They're just doing it because the company they belong to are doing it and they don't quite know why. Now, that's not only unintelligent, it's very, very poor Christianity. Here the apostle gives us reasons. We must know. We must be able to explain. Or, to go on and put it more positively, let me put it like this. Our conduct must always arise from and be dictated by our doctrine. That's the positive way of looking at it all. Not mechanical, not being dragooned into it. No, no. But what we do and what we are and what we refrain from doing must always arise from our doctrine. It must be dictated by our doctrine. Indeed, I'd go beyond that. Our conduct and our behavior should to us be inevitable, unavoidable, because of what we believe. Again, is there anything more sad than a Christian person who is painfully trying to live the Christian life and who yet doesn't quite see why he should or should be living like this? Now, I say our conduct should be inevitable to us. We shouldn't feel it's grievous, as the Apostle John puts it. He says to us his commandments are not grievous. He means by that that he's not straining against them. He's not objecting to them. He doesn't dislike them. No, no. The Christian is a man who, having understood his doctrine, well, says there's no need to argue about this. The thing is inevitable. It follows of necessity as an inevitable deduction and conclusion from what he believes. Now, that's what the Apostle is bringing out here. He says, if you really believe this, well, then you can't possibly go on like that, and you will begin to live like this. It's, it's inevitable. It's something that follows as the night follows the day. It's unavoidable. That's a principle which seems to stand out here everywhere. Or to finish these principles, the sixth and the last I would put to you is this one. The grand motive always for Christian behavior is gratitude to God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Christian conduct and behavior is not a law that's been dictated to us. It's meant to be an expression of our understanding 
of and our gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. So that far from objecting and trying to get out of it and feeling it's hard and narrow and cramped, we should say, what a wonderful opportunity I have of showing my gratitude to him. Very well then. And because that is the final way of putting it, and because it is essentially a way of expressing one's gratitude, it follows of necessity, doesn't it, that we must understand it, because you can't thank God for something which you don't understand. And so we must keep in our minds as we look at these particular injunctions and all these detailed exhortations that that is the setting, that is the background. Now then, we've already been considering the first applications of these great common principles that apply to all aspects of conduct and of behavior. We saw that his first principle, which he deals with, uh, starting at verse 17, was this. He says, you must always remember that you have been born again. You are no longer like those other Gentiles. They remain what they were. You have received a new nature and a new life. That henceforth, he says, therefore you don't walk as the other Gentiles walk. They just go on as you once were, but you are no longer that, you're a new man. So you put off the old man, you put on the new, and he's worked it out in detail for us. That was the first. The second great doctrine which he introduced was the one he mentions in verse 30 of chapter 4, where he says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now there's the doctrine. But a Christian must always remember that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within him. Know ye not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost that dwelleth in you? And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. There it is. The Holy Spirit is within us. We are always to remember that. And if we do remember that, well, it'll govern our conduct. All bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking will be put away from us with all malice. And we will be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Now, there are two illustrations of the method which we've already considered. And now we come to the third in these first two verses of this fifth chapter. And still, his method is the same. He hasn't forsaken it, he's just going on with it. What is this next one? Well, here it is. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling savor. Will anyone disagree with me when I say that here we come to the supreme argument, to the highest level of all, to the ultimate ideal? There's nothing possible beyond this. This is the highest statement of the doctrine that one can conceive of or even imagine. It's really staggering. 
It's almost incredible. But here it is. Be followers of God. That's the doctrine. That's the next principle. Now, it's interesting from the mere standpoint of the mechanics to know whether this belongs to the previous section or the one that's following. I frankly can't make up my mind. I really believe it belongs to both. It was partly suggested, I think, by what he said at the end of uh, chapter 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God. And yet, you notice that the good men who divided up this letter into chapters, they put an end at chapter 4 and they started this new thing in chapter 5. And I believe there's a great deal to be said for that also. Because here he seems to me to be laying down what is, after all, a principle that governs everything. He's gathering it all up, as it were. And then he will go and draw his go on and draw his practical deductions from this in verses 3 to 5. But that really doesn't matter at all. The point is that the apostle is here reminding us of something that we must never forget. In the whole of our life, all our thinking, all our conduct and practice and behavior, be ye followers of God as dear children. Now then, what does this mean? Well, you notice, first of all, that again he's introducing us to a principle of doctrine. In this most practical section, where he's dealing with the most ordinary things in life, suddenly he throws in this. That's why these epistles are so romantic, if you study them properly. You may say to yourself, oh, well, I finished with my doctrine at the end of chapter 3. I can then go on to something else. No, no, you can't. You haven't finished with doctrine. He can't talk about anything except in terms of the truth. And so suddenly, you see, when he's dealing with the most practical things in life, he suddenly hurls this upon us. And we stand before the most staggering and astonishing statement that we can ever face. What is it? Well, let's look at it. Be ye therefore followers of God. Now, we, we have a better translation. This word followers rarely doesn't bring it out as it should. What the apostle rarely said was this. Become imitators of God. Indeed, become mimics of God. That's the word he used. Our word mimic comes from the very word the apostle used. We are to mimic God. We are to imitate God. Become, he says, imitators of God. Is this possible? Isn't this a gross exaggeration? Hasn't the apostle run away with himself or allowed his eloquence to dazzle him? Is he seriously asking us to become imitators of God? Men and women like ourselves, living in a world like this, surrounded by temptations and by the devil, with sin and evil and unworthiness within us, be imitators of God. Is it possible? Well, it's very important that we should be able to answer that question. And we answer it like this. 
We must look at God and we must consider God's being and nature. If I'm to imitate God, I must know something about God. And thank God he's been graciously pleased to reveal himself to us. He does it in his word. Here we have the final revelation. We see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are entitled therefore to say this. That there are certain attributes in God. But you can divide the attributes of God into two groups. There are attributes of God that are not communicable. There are certain things in God and about God that are only true of him. And we cannot imitate him in those respects. What do I mean? Well, I mean this, his glory. We can't imitate the glory of God. His eternity. He is from eternity to eternity. He's everlasting. That's an attribute of God. We can't imitate that. His majesty. Who would be so foolish as to try to imitate the majesty of God? All these attributes, I say, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, they're attributes of God, but yes, but they're incommunicable. They cannot be communicated. They belong alone to God and they make God God. Uh, these are in God because he's God. And we are never called upon anywhere to imitate such attributes. The incommunicable attributes. Ah, but there are other attributes in God which are communicable. Then they are communicable because they are moral in their nature. Now, what are these? Well, that is, these are the ones that we must understand if we are truly to follow our text this morning. The communicable attributes of God include these. His holiness. Be ye holy, says God, for I am holy. There is an attribute of God, I am holy. Yes, he says, but be ye holy, because I am holy. This is communicable. This is something that I am to imitate. As God is holy, I am to be holy. Righteousness. God is righteous and you and I are to be righteous. His justice, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his tenderness, his long-suffering, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his forgiveness, all these are attributes of God. Yes, and they're communicable attributes of God. You go through your Bible and you will find that somewhere or another you and I are expected to manifest these attributes. We are to have them. We are to show them. They are to be parts of our life and living. Well now then, here you see comes an understanding of this particular exhortation. Be ye therefore imitators of God. Become imitators, mimics of God. In what respect? In these respects. That is why I say this thing is so staggering. And that is why doctrine is so important for us. You see, we are not just to be good people. We are to be imitators of God. It's so much higher. It's so much glorious. I'm not to be straining and struggling just not to do those things to keep as near as I can to them, just not do them, and so on, and object to having to live this. Be imitators of God. Here's the appeal, and we only realize the greatness and the value and the staggering character of the appeal. As we realize the biblical teaching about the being and the nature of God and these two types of attributes, 
But here are attributes of God that are meant to come to us and we are to manifest them and to display them. And that's what the apostle is exhorting us and these people to do. Very well. Let me ask a question. Why are we to be imitators of God? Why are we in these respects to be in our daily lives as God is? Well, the answer is here. It's obvious, isn't it? It is first and foremost because we are God's children. Be therefore imitators of God as children beloved. Now here you see we again enter into this realm that is so different from what the world knows. And that is why I often say from this pulpit that the greatest enemy of morality ultimately, the greatest enemy of Christianity eventually, is morality. The most unchristian people in the world today are those people who are living very good lives and are satisfied with it and think that that's the acme. That, I say, is the opposite of Christianity. Goodness for the sake of goodness. They're very good people, I know. But you see, this is something they know nothing at all about. Children of God. That's why we are to live this life and refrain from some things and to do others. Now, the apostle, of course, has already been reminding us of this. It's not a new idea that he suddenly introduces here. We saw it at the very beginning of the epistle. Listen to this in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to what? To the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And listen to him, he said it again at the end of chapter 2, in verse 19. Now, therefore, he says to these people, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but uh, fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, children of God. Adopted into the household and the family of God, belonging to God, related to God. Yes, the adoption of children. And of course, if we don't understand this, we are missing the whole point of the Christian message. And we'll never understand this appeal for conduct and behavior. As Christians, uh, we are not merely believers. We are believers. You can't be a Christian without believing. But the Christian is not merely a man who's believed a certain body of doctrine or believed a truth. As Christians, we are not merely forgiven. We are forgiven, thank God. There'd be no hope for us if we were not forgiven. But Christianity isn't merely to be forgiven and not to go to hell and to continue as you are, but forgiven all along. No, no. To be Christian is not merely even to be born again. It is that there's nothing more glorious than it. Ah, but we must go beyond that. What does our rebirth mean? Well, it means this rebirth after the pattern and the fashion and the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember how we've already been looking at this in chapter 4. He put on the new men, he says, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
The Christian is a child of God. He's been adopted into God's family. He's a partaker of the divine nature. He's born from above. He's born of the Spirit. And of course, the trouble with anybody who objects to living the Christian life is that they have no conception of that. They've never seen it at all. They're quite unaware of it. They think of Christianity as a moral code imposed upon them, and they object to it. They want to be living something else. Well, poor things. They just are ignorant of Christianity. Here's the reason for living the Christian life. We are to be imitators of God because we are children of God. God's children. God's people. That's what Christianity means. Yes, but not only are we as children, you notice he says we are children beloved. It's a better translation than dear children. Comes to the same thing. Children beloved. What does that add? Well, it adds this. That we are not only children of God in the sense that we are in that actual legal relationship. We are children beloved. He's shown his love toward us. And he goes on doing so. He shows his care for us. His solicitude for us. You know, my friend, if you're a true Christian, you are dear to God. I have the authority for the law of the Lord Jesus Christ for saying this. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's what he means by dear children. Children beloved. Oh, it's not some great general notion. He knows us one by one. He's interested in us. The analogy is a human one. Yes, but we can multiply it by infinity. God's interest in and his concern for his children is infinitely greater than the greatest and the noblest natural parent's interest in his or her child. God is lovingly concerned about us. And he looks upon us and he watches us. As the natural parent watches his little child beginning to walk for the first time, as he goes out to school for the first time, as he goes away, he stands and watches him until he goes round the corner. That's an expression of that loving interest. It isn't a mechanical relationship. No, no, uh, dear children, children beloved. Well, now, says Paul, uh, that's how God is to you. He's looking down upon you and he loves you. He's interested in you. You're dear to his heart. He's taking this intense personal interest in you. Here are the reasons. Well, how should that work out? Well, it should work out like this, shouldn't it? Quite inevitably. If I believe and realize something of this truth, the greatest desire of my life should be to show my love to him and should be to please him in everything. Nothing gives God greater joy. I say it on the authority of my text, and on all the parallel texts in the scriptures, nothing gives greater joy to God than to see his children living in a manner that is worthy of him. So if we are children worthy of the name, I say our supreme desire in life shall be to please him and to give him joy. We are told, are we not, that there is joy amongst the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Of course there is. And the joy goes on increasing and increasing. And it is even in the heart of God as his children go on and live in a manner that is worthy of him. 
Now, there's no need to argue about these things. If you've got a loving parent and you love your parent, there's no need to persuade you or to exhort you or to try to dragoon you into the thing. If you know the parent's love and you love the parent, well, you'll be looking for opportunities to please him or her. That's the argument, says the apostle. Become imitators of God as children beloved. Or, to put it in a second way, the argument works out like this. If we realize the truth of this relationship, well, then our greatest desire, of course, in life will be to be like God. Or you can work out these analogies for yourselves. But you look at a little boy who loves his father and who knows his father's love to him. What's that boy trying to do? Well, he's always trying to be like his father. Haven't you seen them? Likes to sit in his father's chair. Likes to take his father's place. Tries to walk like his father. Tries to speak like... He's imitating his father the whole time. Why, well, he's so fond of his father. And he wants to grow up to be a man like his father. That's human nature, isn't it? That's ordinary human love at its best. Again, I say, cleanse it, multiply it by infinity, and you discover what the apostle is trying to say. Be, become imitators of God. Why? Well, because he's your father. And any child worthy of the name imitates his father and wants to be like his father. He thinks his father's the strongest man in the world. He believes everything about his father. His father has all knowledge, and he wants to be like his father. Become imitators of God. As children beloved. And then another deduction. The honor of the family is in our hands. That's true of us always as children in a family. We are representatives of the family. And as people look at us, they don't only judge us, they judge our families. That's why we're all so careful to give instructions to our children, however small they are, when they go out to a little party. We know that it isn't the children who are going to be criticized, it's the parents. Very well, it's perfectly right. The child is the representative of the family. And therefore he shouldn't be thinking of himself so much as of the family. No man liveth unto himself, says Paul to the Romans, no man dieth unto himself. To his Lord every man standeth. And we, if we are Christians, we cannot divorce ourselves from our relationship to God. We can't say, I, now I want to be saved, I don't want to go to hell, I want to be forgiven, but I don't want this Christian life, I want to have a good time in London, and I want to go into this, that, and this. My dear friend, you mustn't argue like that if you're a Christian. If you are a child of God, you're a member of the family, and what matters is the honor of the family, not what you want and like. There's no need to argue about these things. These things operate as principles in human relationships. How much more so here become imitators of God. And then we should be moved and animated by this motive, surely. The privilege of belonging to such a family. And finding ourselves in such a position, even while we are yet in this world as it is round and about us, with all its sin and its shame and its muddle and its agony, is there a greater privilege than being a Christian? I ask you. Can you now mention to me anything in this world this morning that is comparable to this? That you and I are children of God. 
that we belong to his family, we belong to the household of God. Here we are away from home. Our citizenship is in heaven, we belong there. He leaves us in this world of time for a while. And the world is antagonistic, it's hateful, it's sinful. Yes, but it's watching us. And we have been called out of that darkness. We have been taken out of the kingdom of Satan, translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son, adopted into the heavenly family, put into this royal household, though we are still in this world of sin and shame. Is there any honor in the world, I ask, that is comparable to that? Well, if you realize it, you'll be careful about the way you walk. As you walk down the street, you'll say to yourself, I'm a child of God, I belong to the royal family of heaven, and everybody's looking at me and watching me, and they're perfectly right in doing so. They'll be judging God. They'll be judging Christ by what they see in me. Very well, says Paul. Be imitators of God. Walk down the street, if I may so put it, as God. Be imitators of God. Live in such a way that everybody looking at you will be made to think of God. Because you're a child of God. Indeed, you remember our Lord put it himself so clearly... A new commandment, he says, I give unto you, that ye love one another, so shall men know that ye are my disciples. By looking at you and seeing you loving one another, they'll say, what is this? We've never seen anything like this before. This can't happen amongst men as men. What is this? And they'll be driven to the only adequate explanation. So shall men know that ye are my disciples. Or as our Lord again put it in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, but glorify your Father which is in heaven. In other words, the conduct of the child makes people think of the Father. They say, isn't he like his Father? Doesn't he walk like him? Doesn't he behave like him? You can't look at the child without thinking of the Father. Become imitators of God as children beloved. Well then, there are your reasons but let me just ask a final question. How are we to do this? How are we to imitate God? The apostle answers us. He tells us that we are to do it by walking in love. And walk in love. What does that mean? Well, it means that the whole of our conduct and behavior and conversation must be ordered in the realm and in the sphere of love. Again, there's no need to argue about this. If we are to be imitators of God, and God is love, well then we must walk in love. See, that's the inevitable logic of Christian truth. And what is this? Well, he's already hinted at it in the last verse of the previous chapter. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Even as, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Become imitators of God. Do to others what God in Christ has done for you. What is this? Well, we had the exposition there in Matthew 5, in that section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 to 48. Here's our Lord's exposition of our text this morning. 
What are you and I to be like? Well, we're to order our conversation in love. What does that mean? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. There it is. Still more staggering. Become imitators of God, says Paul. Our Lord says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. He says you should live in this way, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. Well, how does he behave? Well, he behaves like this, he says. He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. That's how God behaves. He doesn't confine his blessings to the good and the just. No, no, he gives them to the evil and the unjust also. Well, very well, what am I to do? Well, here it is, says Christ, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. In other words, you see what he's teaching is that we must apply to others what God has done to us and deal with others even though they're enemies and are really dealing with us in a very cruel and most unjustifiable manner, we are to deal with them as God deals with his enemies, with the unjust and the vile and the evil. You see, in other words, what we are called upon to do as God's children beloved is this, to imitate God, and that means that we won't live an ordinary sort of life. Our life will be absolutely different. If, says our Lord, you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. The publicans, you see, love those who love them. There's nothing clever about doing that. There's nothing extraordinary about that. Even the publicans do it. And then he says, if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? There's nothing wonderful in all that. That's the world's morality. What do ye more than others, says our Lord, which can be translated like this? What is there special about that? You see, our life is to be a very special one. You can't be a child of God without being a very special person. And your whole life will be unique and special. There's nothing ordinary about the Christian. He's extraordinary in every single respect. Because he's a child of God. And he does things that nobody else can do. The publicans can't. These other people can't. He alone can. Our whole life is to be special. Because we are children of God. And so we put it finally. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Ah, but you say, he is in heaven and I am on earth. Can it be done on earth? It can, says Paul, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself and for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling savor. I'm going on to that God-willing next Sunday morning. It's one of the most glorious statements in the whole Bible. But here it is. Lest somebody might go out saying, Oh, that's all right. It's very well to say, Be perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. But I'm walking the streets of this sinful world. It's all right. You've got a brother who's been in it. And he's walked the streets of this world. And that's how he walked in love. He gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice. He gave his life 
his body to be broken, his blood to be shed for his enemies, for sinners vile. And it went up to God as a sweet-smelling savour. And as you and I imitate God and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn amongst many brethren, our lives and our activities will go up into the presence of God as a sweet-smelling savour. God will enjoy it. God's father heart will swell with love and with pride as he sees his children imitating him in the sight of men. Be become, therefore, imitators of God as children beloved. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.